for our good. For that we are thankful. It is great to see you here tonight, both members and visitors alike. We, we welcome you. Let's go to God in prayer, please. Great God, King everlasting, righteous Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the great Son who came and surrendered his life for us. We're so amazed the scriptures that tell us that not only did you raise Jesus, but Jesus raised himself. How amazing. We ask tonight as we honor you that our worship will be acceptable in your sight and pleasing unto you. And that you will bless us to be able to carry away strength from today. To fight another day. The battle of spirituality. And in the end, Lord God, through your grace and mercy, our souls might be saved. These things we ask and pray in that wonderful name of Jesus Christ. To be that way. Amen. The, um, the title suggests a very real, or maybe very real events in the lives of, of many people. And I want to look uh, at, if you will, this topic of the evil mindset of hiding behind righteousness. The Pharisees lived a, a life with a, uh, it was full of contradictory concepts. They played this game of religion, if you will. And you've heard people say, you know, don't play religion as a game because it's not, right? But they played a game, this game called religion, and they, they weren't very good at it. Uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus tells us about these Pharisees. He described their belief system. He says, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Wow, what a, what a game, right? So when, in other words, what would happen is you would see a scribe or a Pharisee walking towards you and you would automatically think holiness, righteousness, godliness. But you were actually staring in the face of total hypocrisy. They would widen their phylacteries. They would lengthen. They would make themselves in the tassels. They would make themselves look like, like these amazingly religious people. So I call this the games that we play because they knew exactly what they were attempting to do as they were discussing amongst themselves how to hide or justify their lives, the evil that's there, hiding behind righteousness. They're the ones who enjoy debating with God and then find themselves that they've lost the debate but refused to surrender. They were the ones who underestimated Jesus. And as they, as they sat there and watched what he would do and, and listened to the things he would say, instead of standing in, in wonderment and, and amazement, they believed themselves to be more intelligent than Jesus. So they would try to always draw him into some kind of 
intellectual, uh, theological corner to force Jesus to discredit himself, finding out they themselves were not intellectual at all. So the question is asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, we know that and we see that. But when God made their wisdom foolish, they didn't give up. Mark chapter 7, please. One thing that could not be done is Jesus would not be put to shame. And Jesus himself would not be outdone by the scribes or the Pharisees. They wove an amazing web, didn't they, for themselves. Mark 7 and verse 5. Jesus says, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the, uh, the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. That became their religion. Their, their precepts, right? Their co own commandments always overrode the commandments of God. They were neglecting, verse 8 says, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to your tradition. Of men. So, so here's what God says, but here's what our tradition is. And the tradition always superseded the commandments. That's another game. I've seen that in our world today. To the Pharisees, sin was not the problem. Jesus was the problem. So they tried to, they tried to trap him. I'm going to Mark chapter 3. They wanted Jesus dead, but they had a problem. If they, if they killed him, that would be murder. And we don't want to be called murderers, right? So how do you murder Jesus without actually murdering Jesus? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, right? How do we find a way to force him to say something that sounds like it's wrong, and that's good enough, and we'll take that, and we'll murder him for it, or we'll kill him for it, according to the law. Like Paul, you know, it's kind of funny. The apostle, well, Saul at the time, breathing threats, trying to get the Jews, or the Christians rather, to blaspheme. Well, if you cause them to blaspheme, aren't you the cause of the sin? And is that true blasphemy? Well, anyway, it's a trip. It's a, it's a trick and a trap, and they got themselves into a lot of trouble. Watch how politics comes in. Mark 3 and verse 6. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, that right there is an odd situation to have the Pharisees and the Herodians join forces. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Mark chapter 8. In verse 14, God says uh, in this text, and they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf. 
in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had brought no bread. But the point was, watch out for the Herodians, their evil group. Watch out for the Pharisees. They're another group all within themselves. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'm just trying to set the stage here. John chapter 11. Jesus announces to us, tells us what kind of people it is that he's dealing with. So they were, they were setting up not just traps and playing these games. They would be willing to line out conspiracies, right? They were, they were conspiracy theorists, if you will, making up things about Jesus that are about God too that were not true. Well, listen to what it says. Verse 47, John 11. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Well, the first thing we ought not do is try to trap him because he's performing miracles and we can't deny it, right? No, but see, that's why they're playing a game. So instead, they conspire an idea of, well, how do we answer this question? How do we, how do we solve our dilemma? Again, their dilemma was not sin. Their dilemma was Jesus. Verse 48 says, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see the problem? That has nothing to do with sin, right? We just want our prestige and power and our money, right, and our fame and fortune. We want to continue to walk around with, with, with lengthened um, tassels and, and broadened phylacteries, and we just want to look good amongst the people, and we don't, we don't care if we're hypocrites. We, that's, not, that's not our problem. Our problem is Jesus. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, of which he was right, but he didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and the whole people or the whole nation should not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. That's why I'm saying he didn't know what he was saying. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only but that he might also gather together into the children of God all scattered abroad he's going to gather them together into one that's not what they were trying to do that, that's not what they meant to happen but they didn't know what they were saying and he didn't know what he was saying so from that day on they planned together to kill him if they only knew but they didn't understand that what they were doing was, was by all means going to go contrary to what they were trying to preserve or hold. They began to play this game. How do, we, how do we cause Jesus? Matthew, please, chapter 22. How do we cause Jesus to sin? But not just, not just a sin. We need him to commit uh, a sin that is in our eyes we would call it blasphemy so that we can murder him under the name of the law so instead of murdering, it's killing him based on the law itself. So in Matthew 22, the dangerous trap begins. Imagine that you walk, someone walks up to you and says this to you. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might 
trap him in what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and, and, and you teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. And Jesus, not being like us, would have said, well, well, then if that's true, why haven't you listened or obeyed yet? He didn't do that, though, did he? He didn't say, oh, if, okay, well, then stop right there. Audience, did you hear that? All right, so let's go ahead and learn some more. about." He didn't do that. Instead, he allowed them to play their game. No, so they butter Jesus up, attempting to appeal to his pride, right? Get his pride all riled up and all that good stuff. The problem with this text is, the Herodians are there, and the Herodians are friends with the Pharisees. And, and, and the Herodians are, are those who accepted Roman rule, and they kind of just played the part, and, you know, they gave the gold to Rome, and Rome gave them a little bit, and, you know, the Herodians were intertangled with the Romans tremendously, and the Pharisees didn't like that. They were, they were opposite. They were opposing groups, if you will. So the Herodians and, and, the, and the Pharisees are rival parties, but they team up against Jesus. And they together come, who are obvious enemies of God, and they butter Jesus up and say, Jesus, all of your teaching is right. Everything you've said is right. Um, remember the Herodians are the ones who uh, Herod, what did he do? He killed all the babies because the Messiah was coming. I'm not sure them buttering Jesus up is working right now. So Jesus, knowing it's a money game they're coming to him with, Matthew 17, is it the first time uh, they came to him with the money game? I want to grab, um, well, wait, verse 17 first. And verse, verse 18, they butter him up. They, they ask a question. Verse uh, Matthew twenty-two seventeen. 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, look. They really, really got together on this one. This one, this is a really good question from a humanistic standpoint, right? Uh, because you've you got to be really careful on how you answer this one. See, if, if, Jesus, if Jesus answered this question incorrectly, we've got a problem. If, if he says that it's right to pay taxes to Caesar... Well, that discredits him because the Romans were very evil, right? And as far as taxes are concerned, they double tax people. They, they, they tax people in an ungodly, unlawful way, but they didn't care because they were Rome. So if Jesus had said, hey, you know, uh, on this one hand, we got to think about our taxes and we want to make sure that we pay our taxes, the Jews who are following him, the Christians, are going to say, we want nothing to do with Jesus any longer. He would have discredited himself. Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrite? So he saw right through their plan of their action. But again, this isn't the first time. Matthew, I'm going to go to 17 now. Matthew chapter 17, I'm going to look at verse 24 with Peter. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 24. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? 
And upon him saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take out the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Jesus did pay the tax, right? Because if he didn't pay the tax, there'd be problems. You know, Barabbas was, I'm going back, I'm going to Matthew 22, was known he was a, as an insurrectionist, and that's where they were going to kill him, remember? Right? In the insurrection, there was, there was a murder also, but he was an insurrectionist, someone who rose up against, against Rome. The zealots were out there. The zealots rose up against Rome. But Jesus was not an insurrectionist either. But if they could have shown that he was an insurrectionist and that he had said, nope, we don't pay Caesar any taxes, they would have taken him to Caesar and then Caesar would have executed him. They would have killed Jesus without it being called murder. Matthew 22 in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Caesar's face was on that, on that image. What was on the other side? Right? If, if, if the other side had something to do with God, and one side had something to do with Caesar... Kind of remind us of our coins in a way, right? You gotta flip it. You know what it says around it, right? And God, we do we really trust God? I wanted that sometimes. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So now see the words that Jesus uses cannot contradict the future words that are going to come by way of inspiration through the apostles. Romans 13. Paul speaking about the Roman government and, and taxes and the law. And as evil as the Roman government was, yet you still have this particular instance where in Romans 13 and verse 7, the Bible says, Render to all what is due, them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor, because the government is going to get theirs. Right? I mean, that, it's just going to happen. They're, they're, they're not going to let you just, you know, fold up in a corner and get away with it. They're going to get there. So God says, give to them what belongs to them. First Peter uh, chapter, chapter 2. The teaching had to be consistent in the days of Jesus and from this point forward. If not even today, the, those who are against the word of God would use this text to say, here in one place Jesus said this and his apostle says that and that's a contradiction. But there are no contradictions and it fuses so sweetly together. 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for punishment or evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. You, you have to surrender because some of this in our lives, even though all belongs to God and we say that, it belongs to the government. And they'll let us know that every April 15th, won't they? And if you don't do it right on April 15th, they will show up at your house eventually, right? Matthew 22, 
Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. And so that, that trap that they set, that they laid for him, should have worked, but it didn't work. And what's, what's interesting to me is that there's no surrender by the Pharisees. There's absolutely no humility in them whatsoever. Jesus gives his answer, and in verse 22, and hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So you go away and you say, I don't know how he came up with that answer. He must be, no, he can't be God. <laughs> he must be the, mis- there's something different about him. Maybe we ought to step back and listen and learn. But that was not their attitude. How exactly does someone outwit God? And yet, we could sit here intellectually and say, and even, even theologically, and say, you cannot outwit God. And yet, Christians try to do it all the time. Right? Christians always try to outwit God. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's amazing to me that, you know, uh, you know godly people like, oh, I'm on the Internet, and no one knows, right? No one sees me, right? No one knows what I'm doing. No one sees me cheating on my tax. No one. Isn't God sitting right now? Isn't, doesn't he, does he know? Well, we think sometimes that maybe God doesn't actually know. Hebrews chapter 4. But doesn't he know? Right? Well, Hebrews 4, I think, is a pretty blanket statement. That only God can render man without excuse. Every thought they had, and as they were try, uh, trying and attempting to, to deceive the Father and deceive Jesus, they never surrendered, though they know they should have. In verse 12, the Bible says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the, see that, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? Oh, you know, well, what I meant to do was, well, is that really what, no. No, here's, God knows your intention, whatever it was, and the thoughts that you used to bring you to this point, and the, and the evil that came behind it, and or maybe it was good, the good intention. Maybe you really did have a good intention. Your thought was good, and, and you wanted it to turn out good, but it didn't turn out the way you hoped it would. But what if you had an evil intention, right? And you thought of a plan of how to figure it out. Did God not see it? Does God not know it? He does. Verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. We're just an open book, right? We're an open book, right? No thought, no idea, no... Just an, we don't have to hide. The beauty of, of this, so there's two sides to this. There's a scary side. The scary side is God knows it. I can't trick me. The blessing is, thank you, God, for knowing it and being willing to always help me. See, that's the side we want to be on, right? I'm so happy that God knows it. He knows my weakness. He knows what I, what I can handle, what I cannot handle, where I need him. I mean, I always need him, but where I need him the most. And he knows how to steer me clear of this and steer me clear of that. And I'm asking him, God, keep me from those things that I ought not have or I ought not do. 
Lead me away from temptation. Keep me from temptation. Remove those traps that Satan lays out there in the morning for me that I cannot see. We're like an open book. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Imagine, if you will, in closing out tonight, being a Pharisee, I'm going to Romans 11, and the inspired book comes along, and, and you're reading the Bible, and you read this letter to the Roman church, where you said, there'll be no church here. And you're reading the letters to the Roman church, the Roman congregations. And as you're reading the letter to the congregations at Rome, you run across this scripture in Romans 11 and verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who was, or who has first given to him that it might be given or paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All the depth of the, of the rich. I remember that time when we asked Jesus these questions. And we counseled and we spoke about it and we had a good plan. Ananias and fire. We had a great plan, you see, because we were going to sell the piece of property for this. We were going to keep back a little bit, right, for ourselves, you know, you know, for those difficult times. And then, but what we're going to tell the people is that we're giving all the money and we're not holding any of it back and no one's going to know. And God says, why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? As if God wasn't engaged in that conversation. I think about, I think about Satan's trick. Remember in Revelation 12, it tells us there was a war in heaven and, and, you know, Michael and his angels and wage war against the dragon and his angels. And, okay. So imagine with me for just a moment, right? So, so you, you have God in the heavens and, and all the angelic realm. And Satan's going to play the first trick. So he convenes a meeting amongst the angelic realm that he gets, you know, gets a hold of. And they go and meet in a heavenly corner, whatever that looks like. And they make a plan. We're going to go to war against God and we can take him. Was God not in that meeting? <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> you think about that, you go, did they really think God didn't know? They watched the creation. Did they, they knew they were created themselves. Did they really think God didn't know what they were doing? And they didn't even, they didn't even reach near God before God said, okay, that, that's, yeah, that's enough. And then like lightning just shot him out of heaven. It just, but there's no surrender for Satan either, is there, God? There's no surrender. Tonight, the question is, is there surrender in my heart? When I think about my relationship with the Lord, and the Lord knows, and he knows my intent, he knows my desires, he knows my wishes. Is there surrender in my heart? Where I say, Lord, I'm, I'm no longer going to play a game. I want my heart and my mind and my body and my soul. I want it truly given to you. Please take me and use me as you see fit. Is that where I am in my relationship with the Lord tonight? The lesson is to yours tonight. If there's something we can do, someone would like to surrender to waters of baptism, we invite you to do so. And those who have special requests on their heart, please make it known while together we stand and sing our song of invitation.
Lord, it needs restored. My heart is weary, please help me, dear Lord. I stand in need of more strength from your word. Renew my love, rebuild my faith, oh, restore my soul. Revive the fire, Lord, deep in my soul. Stir my desire to work in. 